So I want people to understand that Black America, um, just like everywhere else, we have a complicated history. It just wasn't some people that were brought on some ships and then freed and then started jumping up and down, singing and dancing and making money, entertaining people. The story is way more complex than that. So I want people to understand how our blood, sweat and tears built this country. And the reason why you're enjoying it today is because of us. So that's why, that's my motivation. That's my why. Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. Happy February. Um, It is Black History Month, amongst many other things that are going on. Um, And we're super excited for today's episode. Um, How are you doing today, Jasmine? I'm doing very well. Um, I like February in California. It rains and you're just reminded like, all the things happen. We had an earthquake and it's been raining. So we've had all of the things that go wrong in California recently. But how are you? I'm well. I had a um a somewhat love-filled weekend, had a Valentine's Day um gathering that my friend hosted. That was a lot of fun. And then had a vision board party the next day. I kind of liked doing the vision board a month into the year because imagining like doing that a month ago would have felt a little chaotic so i thought it was like a galentine's vision board like a vision of love board i'm like "Mm, that seems i can't do that i don't have the energy no no it was just like a standard one for the year and this is like the third year in the row that my board doesn't have anything to do with love on it so i gotta gotta unpack that put some love on your vision board nemo you have to envision it and you gotta see it to believe it to achieve it Um, I'm excited for today's episode. We have been thinking about this episode since last year. Um, and so today's episode, we're going to be talking about genealogy and urban planning and the connections thereof. And so you might be thinking like, huh, how are they connected? And so neighborhoods and people are connected people just on a basic level people live in spaces whether you live in dc you live in la you live in chicago you live in a particular neighborhood and that neighborhood has evolved and changed over time um it might have gone from an agricultural space to a more suburban space to a more urban place and the demographics of the people that have lived there um may have changed over time and there are histories and cultures that are lost and may not have been respected or treasured over that time period and We wanted to, in this episode, break down how cities, particularly we're going to be focusing on Washington, D.C., our nation's capital on the East Coast, and the city of L.A. um, are furthest kind of 
westward city thinking about the american expansion west um, as our two kind of focus cities and thinking about how broadly demographics changed over time but also about individual families who were a part of one of many one of millions of people that have lived in a particular space and kind of highlighting their story and to do that we are going to have a guest on the show ross murph and i'll take a second to read his bio before we kind of get into our interview portion with ross and so ross murph was born in new york into a two-parent household with two full black american parents he moved around a lot in his life from walrick new york teaneck new jersey and middletown delaware kind of all along the East Coast, before returning to New York. Family was everything to him growing up, being one of seven seven siblings and growing up around his great aunt's grandmothers and great grandparents, whom he frequently visited down South. They shaped his understanding of what it means to be a Black American far behind the stereotypes that media pushes. And the conversation around media will also become very apparent because Ross, our guest, has a very large media presence on YouTube and on TikTok and on Instagram that we'll get into and hopefully kind of talk about his work in those spaces. And so, Ross, our first question to you is for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. We've talked about some of the places you live, but tell us more about your personal, your family background and your why. What is your research? Why do you do it? Well, growing up with our your aunt, my grandma, Ernestine, uh, Ernestine Bonds, she was born in a little town called Summertown, Georgia. And growing up, she constantly would tell me about what it meant to be a black person well she would say negro and she preferred the words negro and colored according to my father she didn't like the term black but she taught me what it meant to be a black american where she would always say that you have uh, different walks of life uh different you have black people that came from different walks of lives and she would say that you know you can do anything she told me i could be a president I could be a senator, I could be a musician, I could be a basketball player. She really instilled that as a Black person, anything was possible. And I didn't understand what she meant at the time, because the media shows us something different. It shows us a broken a community. It shows us Black people struggling. It shows uh, one-parent households. It shows you know, deadbeat fathers and baby mothers. And these are the stories that this is the narrative that's pushed to the Black community that we're nothing but, you know, a musician, a basketball player. But those things are great. We love Beyonce. We love LeBron James. But we can do more than just entertainment. And she always told me that. And I would constantly ask her about our history and who I was and, you know, Jasmine, as you know, we have different skin colors, skin tones in our family. And sometimes some Black people, they look, uh, what we would say, you know, you look white presenting. And she would say, you know, Black people come in all different shades. Some of us are dark skin, some of us are light skin, some of us are high yellow. And but at the end of the day, we're all Black because we have a shared experience. And when she said that shared experience, I learned that being a Black American is more than what meets the eye. It's about a community that persevered. And despite the challenges that come 
under this white institution, the white supremacy that is the United States, we still have succeeded and we still are continuing to succeed despite all these obstacles. So that's my why. I want to show people what she showed me. Thank you for that. I um no, I really like the last point you just touched on about um acknowledging the differences and the varieties in being black and that it's not all the same. But I always think it's important for us to remind ourselves of that and then also remind others as well as even it's possible to just be in you know your own community and seeing people who look like you who had similar experiences and forgetting that there are black people all across the country who have had those different experiences too um so what's your primary area of study within genealogy um, and then what are the specific histories that you want to uncover with your research so my primary area of study is black americans and when you're studying Black Americans, you have to acknowledge that there are many terms that people use to address us throughout history. You have Negro, you have colored, and then of course you have other terms that refer to color in terms of like mulatto, quadroon. Quadroon is a person that uh, will be considered 25%, having 25% African blood. And that wasn't like a DNA test. That was just like the community knew that you had a black great grandparents so you will be still part of the black community so my area of focus is black people no matter what that percentage is it's about if they lived the black experience were they segregated were was their family enslaved did they have to um suffer through jim crow you know were they in black spaces that's what makes a black american did you have to live in black spaces so that's my primary area of focus but because of the tumultuous environment that was America at that time and today, it does include and spills into white America. And because um, the foundations of this country were the Portuguese and Spanish, which a lot of people don't know, Florida, um, you have Florida, which is St. Augustine and many other colonies um, and cities were originally founded by the Portuguese and Spanish in the United States. So I do catch myself delving into the uh, Spanish colonization, which spills over into the Caribbean. So my focus is the Americas, but my main focus is Black America. And within that, what are your, what are the histories that you want to uncover what are the stories that you want to tell and the knowledge that you want to share with the world there's historians at various universities and campuses all over the the, the country and kind of what is your kind of theology and purpose for this area of study growing up um a lot of people Growing up, my grandma was always telling me that there's many different colors in the black community, and I didn't really know what that meant. And as she was telling me about the family, like her mother is somebody who's very fair skinned and some people mistake her for a white person. And being in New York and just going to school and telling people, oh, my mother, she's black, but she's light skinned or having other family members and showing pictures and people saying that person doesn't look black. It made me realize that people don't know what it means to be a black American. They don't know our history. And so that um, motivated me to dig deeper into my ancestry and dig deeper into the records and who I am. We're one of the only, we're, we are actually the only people in the world that go by this one drop rule or this, uh, what we call hyper descent, where is the, the uh, subordinate 
population, which is the black people, is the way you in which you identify. So if you have one drop of black blood, that's you identify as black. Every other country, they do not do that. So I think it's important that people know the true history of this country. We have had that taken away from us by white supremacy. This is the only country that has a domestic terrorist group that was rampant and was supported by the government um, against the people. Um, many other countries in the Americas, people were allowed to choose how they wanted to identify. That's why you have in the Dominican Republic, in Puerto Rico, people identify by their ethnicity. Only in this country do people identify by uh, turmoil. So I want people to understand that Black America, um, just like everywhere else, we have a complicated history. It just wasn't some people that were brought on some ships and then freed and then started jumping up and down, singing and dancing and making money, entertaining people. The story is way more complex than that. So I want people to understand how our blood, sweat, and tears built this country. And the reason why you're enjoying it today is because of us. So that's why, that's my motivation. That's my why. I think that's very powerful. I think it's very important to tell that story because, yeah, I mean, if you pick up any elementary or high school or unfortunately university textbook, you do read a very linear story. You were brought here from Africa. You worked as slaves. We freed you. You struggled. You still struggle. A couple of you guys do well. You become a president and you still struggle. And I, I do think that when I watch your videos and I listen to um, your YouTube videos, I really do appreciate you telling a very nuanced story and doing so in a way that um, makes it easy for people to understand. I think you do a lot of due diligence in your research and you're able to tell those very nuanced stories. And so I just want to give an opportunity for the three of us on this call um, just to share our own kind of family and personal history um, as we now transition into more of a place-based kind of analysis. And so Nima, I'll start with you and just asking you to share as much as you want to around your family history. Yeah. And I, I was just thinking um, to Ross's last point about the narrative that we also hear in textbooks of, oh, America is the richest, most powerful country. And then it leaves out the part about how they got there from the free labor of black people. Um, and those that that somehow never seems to get connected. It's like we magically became a powerful, wealthy country. Um, but yeah, and, and my background and I, I feel like I've I don't go into too much detail in past episodes, but I may reference it if it's relevant. So my mom is from Louisiana, um, uh, from a town called Arrington um, on the West Bank of the Mississippi River. So about an hour south of New Orleans. And um, that community, a lot of the people who still live there, it's a black town um, and it's the uh, the descendants of the slaves who lived at a nearby plantation. Um, and so that is the land um, that they lived on since emancipation and the families, um, a lot of those families still remain. Um, and that town, Arrington, has been plagued with uh, segregation um, through government. The uh, It's located in Plaquemines Parish. And so the political leader was racist and it continued even after his reign ended in 1969. Um, they were denied infrastructure, um, they were denied development, um, and they didn't have running water until 1980. 
Um, and for a long time, when you would look into the history of the of the town and the community, it's just like, oh, well, there's, they didn't have running water. No, it was intentional. Um, and it's even along driving to the town, it is lined with oil refineries. Um, and so I've seen my family have um, health issues and um, pub the public health, the shortened lifespan as a result of living um, in those environmental conditions. Um, and then on my dad's side, my dad is from Lagos, Nigeria, um, and uh, our ancestral roots go back to the, I can't say it quite like him, but we're Lagosians. Um, and so it's not like somewhere along the lines, like someone moved there, but like, that's where we originated from dating back. Um, and uh, on my, on his maternal uh, side, um, my great-grandfather uh, purchased land from the indigenous people who were given land after the capital was founded um, in Lagos. So the capital at the time was Lagos. And so the government displaced, but also gave land to the indigenous people and relocating them, either gave the land or um, founded a new community for them. And so a lot of them sold that land. Um, and this still happens in the current capital of Abuja, where those indigenous people were given land. Um, and they often want to live in the place that is most familiar to them. And so that's not on the paved roads or the completely finished homes. They want to live in the, as people would say, the village. They still want to live there no matter how much money the government gives them. So they end up selling their land. Um, and so that's how my great-grandfather purchased multiple properties. And then when he passed away, um, my grandmother um, inherited one of those homes. Um, and that's the home where my father grew up in. And I'll stop there. But <laughs> that's, that's some of the some of the history. I, I just want to say something to that, Nemo. Um, in the gene genealogy world, Nigeria is being used as a uh, barometer for that's where the most enslaved people were taken from, right? And the funny thing about that is that if you look at the Ancestry 23andMe um, white papers, they call it, or if you talk to an expert, a scientist that works for those companies, they will tell you the reason why the Nigeria, Nigeria is overrepresented is because Nigeria is the most diverse country in West Africa. And you just spoke to that about the indigenous people being displaced by other ethnic groups in Africa, Africa moving to Nigeria because it's such a um, wealthy, um, you know, well, it's a developing country and it's doing really well. So it's attracting a lot of different ethnicities. I think it's um, always important to share these stories. And I think we talked about this kind of in, I can't remember, one of our episodes um, about Nemo and I we both went to planning school and how you kind of get to planning school and everyone's talking about equity and DEI and diversity and inclusion but we never really have a moment to like talk about our own family background so I like to have these moments to share and so Ross and I are cousins um and I'll just share my family background as I understand it to be um my grandfather and Ross's grandmother, our brother and sister, growing up in the same household in Georgia. Um, and I'm always very proud of sharing the story of my grandfather and his siblings, my great um, aunts and my great uncles as being part of the great migration. Um, 
of Black Americans migrating from the South, from places in Georgia and Louisiana, Mississippi and Arkansas to places like Houston not Houston, like Oakland and New York and Chicago and New Jersey and Boston and looking for better wages, truthfully, just looking for better opportunity for themselves and for their children. And so my grandfather is one of the millions of Black Americans who left the South to the North for opportunity. Um, And he worked in a car factory for 40 years and was able to save and work diligently as both a cab driver and a bartender and his own kind of construction company and doing snowplow and just a bunch of different jobs so that he was able to build a house buy other houses provide for his family and for his children and for his grandchildren and when I look at the that particular time period in America, I'm always filled with joy that my family is a part of it and how much opportunity was able to come from that. And I always struggle with the narrative that Black Americans are shiftless and lazy and want to receive handouts from the government and choose to live in places um where there's no running water, for example. Um, Because when I look at my family, when I look at members of Ross's family, I look at members of Nemo's family, that's all I see are hardworking Americans getting up every single day to build and build this country and provide for their family. So I really struggle with the concept and the narrative that we have no purpose. And it's been instilled in me a lot to be a hard worker and to be determined and all of those things. And so um, I think it's helpful for us to tell that story because it does require some attention. I think there's a big effort across America and whether it's in the media or in history to kind of tell a different version of our story for whatever purpose it serves for the people telling that story, that some kind of way is beneficial to not connect the dots as Nemo said from how America became one of the wealthiest countries in the world to just leave the part out about everything that we've done for this country um and so we're going to spend some time now digging into the history of urban planning through a lens that we haven't really talked about I know we had our episode our first episode which is the history of racism and urban planning and that kind of starts from um, we talk about that from a housing and a transportation lens, talking about the Highway Act that enabled cities to use highways as a way to ram through existing urban communities. But we'd like to take it a step back to one of the most basic premises of urban planning, which is zoning and property rights. And that goes back very far Um to 1917 in which you have people owning land right and as a property owner it is in your interest for a variety of reasons to make sure that your land remains valuable that you're able to extract all of the value out of that land but you cannot do so unless there is 
government regulation that supports that. And so that's the basis of zoning. The basis of zoning is to protect the rights of property owners. And at various points of time in America, to be a property owner, you needed to be a white person. And white people worked extremely hard to prevent Black people from owning land, and once they did, to prohibit their ability to use that land as they so pleased. And so we have the case of Euclid, Ohio, um, and Ambler, and they questioned the constitutionality of zoning, thinking about whether it was exclusive in nature. And at the end of the case, they decided that yes, cities can zone. Cities can set up different areas of the city designated for residential, for commercial, for agriculture, in that if you own this land, you can do so within the boundaries of this particular use. And if not, you can request to use it a different way. And planning, because of its attachment to zoning, has consistently been used as a methodology to extract as much wealth from a piece of land as possible. And I think that's something that we don't like to really talk about in planning, that we didn't create this thing as now we're turning the corner and trying to focus on equity and trying to focus on DEI. But I think at the foundation of it, it was done to protect the property rights of owners and to make sure that land could be bought and sold and increased for value. Yeah, I think a lot of zoning is done under the guise of protecting property owners slash and dot, dot, dot. Also, um, saying that zoning is there to serve the best interest of everyone who's living in the space or everyone who's living in the environment. And I think with a lot of the starting point for equity conversations now are dialing back the segregate, the impacts of segregation and racially restrictive covenants. And so, um, you know, if you've read Color of Law, like dialing back those things. Um, but I think that longer history uh as Jasmine mentioned, dates back to particularly protecting the future wealth for people who are already wealthy um, and not protecting the land ownership over people who were poor um, or of color. Their property rights were disregarded under a regulatory government system um, to protect those who are already wealthy. And I think the point about zoning that always gets missed is its connection to property taxes and so I appreciate that additional level of um, research that we're going to talk about here but in our budget episode we talk about like the sources of income and sources of revenue for cities and property taxes are one of the biggest sources and so not only are existing property owners highly incentivized to protect their wealth and the, the wealth the future wealth of their land the city is also highly incentivized to make sure that the land in their jurisdiction consistently increases in value because they then tax you as the property owner on the value of the land. And so if they're in a jurisdiction in which land and value is consistently going down, it's not in their best interest. And so you will see why cities are very willing to upzone. Okay, well, we said it could only be a five-story residential tower and you could put in a various for and if we're, we can demonstrate that now this land can be worth a 20-story tower well that's 
four times as many tax dollars that we could generate for our budget and for this and for that. And so those things are very much interconnected and intertwined. And the unfortunate piece about property taxes and about the connection between real estate and planning is that everyone is trying to always maximize that value while at the same time paying the least amount of money. And we see stories, we saw them in the pandemic a lot of how the value of, I actually was just finished reading the book, uh, Know Your Price. I'm going to get the name of it, it'll be in the show notes, but it's about how homes owned by Black Americans and homes owned by white Americans of similar structure, of similar age, similar vintage, are priced and valued differently. And so if I'm a homeowner and I own a three-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bathroom, single-family house in a nice neighborhood on a tree-lined street and I have a white picket fence, but I'm Black and you own one somewhere else, with the similar neighborhood characteristics and you're white, your house is likely going to be valued higher than mine. They've done research on it to show. And what that does is it extracts wealth from black households before they're even able to generate it. Most Americans, the most wealth that they own is in the value of their home. That home ownership is like that key to wealth. When you pass away, you inherit a house, you inherit a land, you inherit an apartment building. And so by valuing it lower, simply because it's owned by a black person, you are consistently removing access to wealth. And I think the number is somewhere in the millions of like over time, how much wealth has been removed from black households simply by uh, undervaluation of their homes as compared to similar homes in white neighborhoods. Yeah, I think um, let us not forget that comprehensive planning and zoning that go hand in hand. Um, Comprehensive planning came out of the Department of Commerce at the time. Um, and so I think thinking about uh, how the property taxes on properties go back into the city's budget um, and is seen as an economic tool dates back to the origins of that as well. And the final point on this is just that just because money and it's interesting because I believe only and you'll probably correct me on this, but I think only school like school district taxes are the only ones in which like where you pay is where it goes. In other areas, we all pay our property taxes on time, February 17th, whatever. But just because I've paid my amount and you've paid your amount doesn't necessarily mean that my street is going to be repaid at the same rate or the same frequency as your street. Doesn't mean that I'm going to have the same number of street trees as your street or the same number of parks or the same quality of those same amenities. And that's where things get really tricky. And we've had a loads of episodes on just the lack of distribution of city resources um, across neighborhoods based on race and income. And so now we're going to hear more from Ross. Um, in particular, we're going to highlight two cities. We're going to highlight Washington, D.C., which is significant because it's our nation's capital, and Los Angeles, California, because it represents the United States' furthest expansion west. We all remember the Manifest Destiny from our middle school 
history class. Um, and we'll discuss both the Afro-Latina population as founders of the city of Los Angeles. And in Washington, D.C., we're going to talk about one particular family, the descendants, the Black descendants of the United States president. And so the story that we're trying to uncover and the story that we're trying to unearth here, the history that we're trying to talk about is the story of Afro-Indigenous land loss in Washington, D.C., and the role of Afro-Latinas in founding Los Angeles. And so, Ross, I'll turn it over to you to start giving us the foundation of this, this history. All right. When talking about land loss, when it comes to, I want to use the term Americans. Now, when I say Americans, we're talking about Black Americans, but I'm using the term Americans because that's what they are. So you're talking about a group of people who some of their ancestry, some of their ancestors were already on this land. And you have some of their ancestors brought here on ships or whether that was from straight from Africa or straight from the enslaved Africans that were living in Europe or the enslaved Africans that were living in the Caribbean. Those are all places where African people were taken from and brought to what is now the continental United States. So you have the Europeans coming to the Americas and displacing the native people. And then you have them taking these enslaved black American, these Africans enslaved black Americans and placing them on these, um, uh, people say plantations, but we know that those were imprisonment camps. <laughs> You know, they placed them on these camps and they were breeding them. They were uh, using them in any way that they could. They, uh, people were a commodity at that time. So right there, you're already looking at land stolen. Fast forward to the emancipation, the Civil War. And now you have a group of people who are freed and have nowhere to go. And everyone heard, we all heard about 40 acres and a, a mule. No one received their 40 acres and a mule. You had to work and earn money to buy a property. You had to work for your land. You had to, you, we always had to work in this country. Nothing was handed out to us. That's a lot of things. That's something that a lot of people don't know. Um, so once the Civil War was over and, and all the enslaved people were emancipated. They built what we call freedmen, freeze, freedmen villages. There were a bunch of villages that they had for the freed people if they didn't stay on the plantation. A lot of uh, freed people stayed on the plantation, freedmen. They, on the, they stayed on the plantation in which they were formerly enslaved and they were sharecroppers and they were hoping to earn their money to buy a portion of that land or go somewhere else and buy some property. So these villages, we have one that was, everyone knows Arlington Cemetery. So you have the Arlington Cemetery in Washington, D.C. That was a huge freedman's village because in Virginia and in Maryland and North Carolina, all these areas that surrounded D.C., D.C. was a major city back in, at that time. It had a population, I don't know where we could pull up the population, but it was a large population in comparison to New York and, and Atlanta wasn't even a city at that time. So just keep in mind that D.C. was a major city at that time. So if you were a free person and you're looking for work, you want to go to D.C. That's what all the 
politics and all the entertainment, everything was in DC. So you, as a black person, you knew you can get a job in DC. So they had the Freeman's Village on Arlington Cemetery. And I'm saying Arlington Cemetery because that's what you know it as today. But back then it wasn't Arlington Cemetery and Arlington Cemetery is owned by the government. Now, Arlington House is where Arlington Cemetery is now today. So Arlington House still stands. So you have George Washington Park Custis. He lived in Arlington House. George Washington Park Custis, of course he owned enslaved people. George Washington Park Custis is the part of the George Washington's family. This is George Washington's grand step-grandchild. So it's Martha Washington's um, blood grandchild, George Washington's step-grandchild. And he owned enslaved people, lived in Arlington House on the Arlington Plantation of what is now today Arlington Cemetery. And he had children with one of his enslaved women. And that family was the Syfax family. So the Syfax family, you have George Washington Park Custis. He had children with his enslaved uh, woman that he claimed to love. And he freed her and his her children. He freed his enslaved woman and her children. Now, we're talking about Robert E. Lee's first cousins. This is his Black family that people didn't know about until it wasn't announced until 2019 that the uh, Arlington Cemetery and what is the U.S. government came out and said, yes, those are George Washington Park's Custis kids. And the reason why it's a big deal, because this is one of the wealthiest white families, if not only the United States, but the America, they're connected to royalty. This family is descendants of uh, King Charles. Um, you know, that was the king who started the um, English Civil War. So you have this Black family living on what is now Arlington Cemetery, at the time Arlington Plantation. And Maria Sifax, she was deeded 17 acres of Arlington Plantation. But as time went on, the family was struggling to maintain their inherited land because the government constantly was questioning where are the deeds, where are the records. And also she was an enslaved woman. So that was bizarre for them to give they the the white people thought it was bizarre for somebody like George Washington Park Custis to give his enslaved woman, any any white person, it was bizarre to give their enslaved person property. But that would make they should have thought, okay, maybe this is his uh child or offspring, but they didn't think that. They just thought he was doing something, I guess, uh, strange and, you know, crazy. So in these records, you have these chancery suits that were filed by the Syfax uh, family in the Alexandria Courthouse, and they were constantly fighting to claim their land because the U.S. government was trying to... Um, say that the property doesn't belong to y'all. We actually need the property. Like you talked about zoning. If you see where Arlington Cemetery is today, it's in a prime location in DC. And well, eventually they lost the, the uh, property. The family lost the property during World War II. At the beginning of World War II, the US government condemned all the Syfax property except what the Abbey Mausoleum stands for war purposes. The owners filed suit against the government for compensation for the loss of their land and buildings. The government settled with the owners in 1943 by either paying cash or finding them acceptable housing in the area. The homes that were removed 
were two-story white frame houses with front and back porches. Mrs. Beatrice Ritchie of Arlington, whose husband was the son of Mima Maria Frost Ritchie, the descendants of the Syfax family, and one of the families moved off the land, said that the, that the Syfax property graveyard was in the vicinity of where the swimming pool has been built on the grounds of Henderson Hall, which was a military compound. It's still there. Those reinterred in Lincoln Memorial Cemetery were Charles, Marcella, and then it goes on to name all the other Syfax descendants. So the government just decided to take that property from this family, despite them being descendants of George Washington. That would have never happened that they was white because there are many properties throughout DC that stand from that era that you can go and visit today that are properties from prominent white men at that time. Because they were black, they weren't considered of significance. Now the Syfax family, they're a light-skinned family. And with that became light-skinned privileges and also being descendants of you know, a wealthy white family. So despite all that, they were still treated as, as my grandma would say. So that's yeah. the, that's what happened in DC. That happened to every black family. That, that was what's happened to every black family. So this is a black family that should have been at the top and they were seen as no different than every other black family in the area. Yeah. It sounds like a case of I don't know what how it's described in the documentation, but it like sounds like a case of eminent domain, except they didn't actually have like a just reason or like a justification for why. I mean, other than just wanting it, because like you said, it was prime real estate. Did they in your research, did they give any specific reason um, or was it just the basis of we don't care who you descended from? we're taking it because we want to and we have the power to do so. But did they give a specific reason why they could take it other than, I guess, just saying that they didn't have the proper deed or documentation? What I see from DC, so I focused on this particular family, but I did pull out some other stuff for DC. And you have the area surrounding Howard University, U Street. You have Foggy Bottom. You basically the entire Northwest region, you have areas and where surround Georgetown University. Many of these areas were, if not predominantly black, um, had a significant amount of black people living in these areas. And if you go to DC today, these areas are surrounding the White House. They're surrounding Capitol Hill. So it seems like they wanted these areas to be seen as white areas because they are convenient. So, you know, a lot of times when you go to New York and you go to other major cities, white people are in the most convenient areas. The wealthiest areas are the most convenient areas. Those are the most expensive properties. Where can the most walkable, the nicest neighborhoods that are right next to where everybody wants to be cost the most. And that's what we're seeing in DC with, the landlords. Most of the Black community today in D.C., they live in, I believe, the Southeast region, which is a long way from the White House. Today, and in recent times, cities use eminent domain often. They can say, we need this road, we need this, your house happens to be in the area where we're going to 
building highway, for example. And so we're going to condemn your property and give you what we determine to be a fair market value for that property in order for us to serve some government purpose. The concept and the the legality of eminent domain of the government being able to condemn property is that it has to be used for um, some government purpose. And they also have to pay you a fair market value. And I think the sad part about it is that the person purchasing is also the one setting the fair market value. And so the playing field is not level and you have to go through a very complex and difficult litigation process um, to determine if you think what they're offering you as a value of your land is is below value, um, which already ties into what we were talking about earlier in terms of undervaluing Black spaces and Black property. And so it's a double whammy. It's already undervalued. The government's coming in in present day, giving you a, what they call a fair market value for that land. But that's already below what the quote unquote market value is for the property. And so at multiple levels, wealth that you own and the potential for future wealth that you own is consistently being removed and and extracted from you. And I think it's particularly important for us to tell this story about Washington, D.C. and unearth this history because there's a perception thinking about just like mass media in the stereotype or the kind of narrative that is told around being black in America is that these are the problems of racism, the problems of being treated unfairly, the problems of vice is a Southern problem. Like that happened in Georgia, that happened in Alabama, it happened in Louisiana. Like, yeah, we get that. That's completely understandable. But like, it would never happen in New York. It would never happen in DC, but it's like, no, it happens everywhere. Um, And this relates to the highway act of i can't think of the year but the national highway act of the eisenhower administration and the use of eminent domain and condemnation to build highways through the center of urban neighborhoods just because you can say oh it's blighted and it becomes blighted and you can say it's blighted because the people who live there are black or are some other they're Latino, they're Puerto Rican, they're Dominican, they're Jamaican. You can say, oh, that's a that's a slum neighborhood, so we can demolish it to build the highway. And I think that's just this. It's interesting to see how it's not a new practice. It's a practice that's been going on um, well before the advent of the highway system or subdivisions or, or housing complexes. To finish on that point, so I want to read this excerpt because I want the audience to notice how important race was to them. So again, this is George Washington Park Custis's daughter and granddaughter we're talking about. So George Washington's grandchildren or great-grandchildren. So the Arlington estate, late occupied by the General Robert E. Lee, bounded as follows. So it talks about the parameters of the land. I'll fast forward. In 1860, the state of Virginia land book value for the Arlington state was 34,100. That's in the millions today. The United States government paid 26,000 for this state on January 11th, 1864. Mr. Harris, the Senator for New York and the chairman of the Committee on Private Land Claims 
presented the bill for the relief of Maria Sidefax before the Senate in May 18, 1866. The motion made by Mr. Harris proposed the release and confirmed to Maria Sidefax her and her heirs and assigned a piece of land in the southwest corner of Arlington Estate consisting of 17 acres and 5,300 of an acre upon which she had been living since 1826. In his presentation, the Senate, Mr. Harris, made the following statement. Maria Syfax, a mulatto, was once the slave of George Washington Park Custis. Mr. Custis, at the time she married, about 40 years ago, feeling an interest in the woman, something perhaps akin to a paternal instinct, manumitted her, so freed her, and gave her a piece of land. It had been set apart to her and it's been occupied by her and her family for 40 years. Under the circumstances, the committee thought in no more than just the government had acquired the title to this property under sale for taxes and that this title should be confirmed to her. So they agreed that she should have the land at the time. But it goes on to say the modern Syfax, the Syfax of the present bill, although of African descent like the royal Syfax of yore, is much humbler in personage. The former was born a king, the latter a slave. It continues to talk about the family, but they were so um, adamant about saying, this is a Negro. How did she get this property? It's because of the narrative that Black people are shiftless, that we own nothing, that we never had anything. The go-to is that's not true. And I appreciate um, the findings and being able to share that this is just one particular story that, that we were able to unearth and to tell that story, but there's probably a hundred or a thousand of them just like it. And that's the part of the American history that is undiscovered and like not talked about. Yes, exactly. And I've used this example because this is a woman that is half white and imagine what that meant for those that weren't half white. Just imagine, like the ones that worked for their property and bought their property. Race is consistently a central theme in um, your justification as they're as they're going through the court proceedings. There, why is it relevant to discuss her race? Like, if she lived on the land for forty years and it was hers, and it's hers, discussing her race is a way of trying to say that. She couldn't have possibly owned it. She couldn't have possibly lived there because she was a, a mixed woman, a mulatto, like they described. And so take us now to Los Angeles and let's have a conversation about a different city with a different um, growth period than Washington, D.C., which was part of, you know, the Virginia, Maryland kind of colonies, the initial colonies. Yes, uh, Los Angeles Obviously, the city of dreams, the city of angels, you know, it's always sunny and never usually doesn't rain in Southern California, right? Um, and it's definitely a city that means a lot to Black Americans because it's an entertainment hub. Uh, we used to have Motown and then it became Hollywood. And um, well, Hollywood was always there, but, you know, music moved to Hollywood. And it's a lot of black superstars came out of this city. So the history of the city, a lot of times when people think, hear the word Latino, they think 
I guess, like a white presenting Latino or somebody that looks white. And the history of California was actually, the history of Los Angeles, excuse me, the history of Los Angeles is actually an Afro-Indigenous history. This city was founded by, I believe, 22 Afro-Latino people, Afro-Latino families. So it's, uh, I, it's uh, excuse me, 26. There were 44 founders of the city of Los Angeles, and 26 of them were Afro-Indigenous, Afro-Latino. And these weren't any small, you know, uh, farming families. These were major ranch families. They owned hundreds of thousands of acres in the Southern California region. And a lot of people don't know about this history because the government actually intentionally hid it. So the I'm reading an excerpt from the Los Angeles Times Magazine. It said the plaque soon vanished without a trace because there used to be a plaque commemorating the founders, these Afro-Latino founders in Los Angeles. Rumor had it that several recreation and park commissioners have been displeased by a public display of the role Blacks played in the city's founding. More than 20 years later, another plaque was put in the same spot. It honored the city's founders without mentioning their race. That plaque was replaced in 1981, marking the city's bicentennial with a simple bronze tablet that tells the uh, founders names, race, sex, and age. It was installed through the trailblazing efforts of Miriam Matthews, California's first college-trained Black librarian. So she restored this fact to us, and that's why we are here talking about it today. Thank you, Miriam Matthews. All right. So I want to talk about the uh, Pio Pico family. We all know Pico Boulevard, but many people don't know that the Pico family owned thousands of acres in what is now Los Angeles, California. And something really sad happened to this family. When the Anglo-Americans started to encroach on Los Angeles, as we know, the Westwood expansion, the reason why many of us live in Los Angeles today and speak English is because of uh, the Anglos taking over this once Afro-Latino city. Pio Pico's family owned thousands of acres in California. They were granted in 1841. One of the largest parcels was Rancho Santa Margarita y Las Flores. It had seven rivers and creeks, seven lakes, and 35 miles of coast, two mountain ranges, and vast grazing lands. So this ranch was very profitable, and Pico made a lot of money off the property. But when he needed some financial relief, he sought the help of his brother-in-law, Juan Foster. Now, note that the last name is not Spanish or Portuguese, so it's an Anglo last name. Instead of drafting loan documents, Foster gave Pico a deed of sale knowing this brother-in-law couldn't read English. Trusting his brother-in-law, Pico signed the documents without first consulting his lawyers. A well-documented course case ensued. Pico lost the property. While evidence suggests that the brother's befuddled testimony uh, worked against him, so his brother's befuddled testimony worked against Pico. Pico was a victim of gross miscarriage of justice. In the judgment of Paul Brian Gray, the land passed through several owners before the U.S. Marine Corps bought it in 1942 to build Camp Pendleton. Again, the government is here, baby. They're here taking the property from us. Just once again, it happens over and over again. 
black descended people are being tricked out of their property. So that was just one of the ranches that the Pico family owned. One of the ranches that these Afro-Latinos owned. Remember, I said there were 26 of them, and they were all wealthy at one point. And this happened over and over and over again. And there's so many documents because the way the articles refer to Pico, P.O. Pico is that they say he was very savvy in terms of the uh, legalities of the space of how land and, and, and property ownership and things like that. So he was constantly going to court because he trusted these people, but he didn't know until after it was too late that they were tricking him. And you wouldn't really know somebody is uh, trying to steal something from you if you're, you know, you're breaking bed with them every day, you know, you're creating a family with these people. You wouldn't think that these people are trying to steal from you. Sometimes we don't read documents when our family brings it to us, but this is a, a sign. This is, if you weren't reading documents now, you better start reading them. If you weren't reading them before, you better start reading them now, even if it's your brother. I'm just going to highlight for everyone where Camp Pendleton is located in um, Southern California. And so it's in Orange County. It's just north of Carlsbad, which is just um, probably about 20 or so miles north of San Diego and about 60, 70 miles south of the city of Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles. It is right along the coast of um the pacific ocean and so it's it's extremely valuable land it would have been at that time very valuable for farming for agriculture um and it's extremely valuable today for real estate and views in the ocean and mountain views and all of those things and so i think the theme that's consistent is one the government having a justified if you choose to subscribe to that purpose for needing the land but also um the land being in again prime areas and so i think as you think about or you if you follow the narrative that is told about black americans and people of color in the united states the story is that where we live is not valuable that um southeast dc and harlem and the bronx and um south of new orleans is, is not that's not the place you want to be but i think what's not told is what happened before like how we were pushed into those areas um as opposed to having once had valuable land and it being circumvented from us in a variety of ways yeah and i think the uh you know describing what the land is like today even if some sort of increment was paid out to a family um and and some of the examples that ross is giving it was just taken with with nothing in exchange but i think today we are seeing the examples of the government saying well we're going to give you this or you can buy a new home somewhere else um with the same people taking land knowing what the future value will be and a lot of times those families will never see the same value that the new owners coming in will get to benefit and profit off of and that's i think such a huge part of this is that um generational loss of wealth um creating the some of the narratives in the media too because i think just simply knowing 
the history of your family and the ownership and knowing that your family has ownership over something or a stake in something does so much for the spirit and the self-esteem. Um, and so to not see that generation over generation, there even just becomes that mental loss of like, well, we don't have ownership in my family. And so therefore my future also does is a void of wealth. Um, and what that creates for, I don't want to say like the image, but just the conception and the the decline of progress. Right. That decline of progress. And, you know, and to go off of that, Nemo, I want to read an excerpt that the um, the San Francisco examiner talks about how the family was affected by this loss uh, a few generations later. So it says a document was filed with the county clerk yesterday by which the heirs of the famous Pico family hope to recover some of the vast estates once owned by their ancestors. It was the will of the widow Don Antonio Maria Pico, who was the first cousin of Don Pio Pico, the last Mexican general of California. Don Antonio's widow died 15 years ago. So this is 1897. And this is the first attempt to administer to her estate. Don Antonio was a man of great wealth. He lived in San Jose and was a judge under the Mexican rule. He owned large tracts in Almeida, Marin, Santa Clara, San Mateo counties, and in, law, in Lower California, where he was reputed to own 60,000 acres. She believed that the title of some of the property once owned by her husband had never legally passed out of his possession. She thought that if a claim were made that some of the vast estate could be recovered, in this belief, she made the will, which was filed yesterday. So the family was still trying to get back the property because they knew that it was stolen from their family. It's saying that the grants were made by the Mexican government. And once the U.S. government came, they didn't approve the grants. So the grants were legally um, in the family's name, but the U.S. government claimed that it wasn't legally theirs. So we're seeing an exchange of you know, people that were already on this property, but you see an exchange of documents from one nation to the other. And this new nation saying, we're not honoring those mixed people's um, land documents. That's mine. Give it to give it to white folk and y'all go find something better to do. Just like that. If y'all seen the movie um, Killers of Flower Moon, you see this land theft going on there. And that's what happened with the P.O. Pico family and happened with many black Americans and natives all across the nation. I didn't want to say that Nemo because that was going off the point about the pain. So you see, this is a public article that was published all over California, all over the U.S. People knew that this family was hurting and felt like something was taken from them. I think that's a very important part of when you tell history, right? It's easy to say, oh, that was 100 years ago. Okay, but that's somebody's grandchild. That's somebody's great-grandchild. That's somebody's great-great-grandchild who's probably still living today, right? Who is negatively impacted both financially and emotionally by things that were taken from their family. And I mean, thinking about this particular case is kind of very, it's, it's pretty, it's very egregious, right? It's saying, okay, we've now taken over this land that was formerly a part of Mexico, but we're not honoring or cherishing whatever y'all had going on. That's the, my name, Paul, and that's between y'all. So we just discussed a lot of different histories, our own personal histories, different geographical histories, all with similar themes of um, things, you know, and I think 
maybe we may have described it in this episode as like land loss and that was in the beginning of the episode and now we're at the end of the episode and it's pure stealing <laughs> um a hijacking um a corruption um and i think with the facts that ross bought in there's really no no denying that um and it's just like it's the the facts are the facts and they're hard um and they're painful and you know we see the uh see the repercussions of it today um but what are some of your takeaways from the episode jasmine i think my biggest takeaway and why i wanted ross to come on this episode is because when we have these conversations in planning school, we often start with where planners kind of start. We start with land loss to build a highway, land loss to build a sports facility, land loss to build something else. Um, and we always start, rarely in planning do we start with the acknowledgement that before there was planning, before there were all these government before zoning, before housing developments, before highways, there were people who owned this land, people who lived here, um, who were indigenous to a place that we, we meaning Americans, removed from their spaces. Um, and so I think it's important to take a step back from gentrification, take a step back from urban renewal, take a step back from slum clearance and think about individual property owners who may have had 17 acres or 66 acres or a thousand acres or 50,000 acres of land that was I think most like stolen from them finessed from them hijacked from them and I think that's an important takeaway as we think about planning for these spaces remembering that the land that we're planning on um was not ours to begin with that's my kind of biggest takeaway. And also that, and I consistently say this, but like that Black people are valuable, that our places are valuable, that our neighborhoods are valuable. And I think it's important for the world to understand that and not to follow the narrative that we're shiftless and lazy and want to receive handouts. I think for me, one of my takeaways and um, seeing the mirrors between my family's history of acquiring land in Nigeria and then the parallels of how land acquisition happens in the U.S. And um, something that my dad said that stuck with me is that owning land in Nigeria isn't enough, but you have to truly possess it and build it and do something on it. Um, and uh, I think the way that happens in the US is linear. When we see a sale or know that someone is you know, leasing a space um, or even thinking about property taxes of like, well, if I don't pay my property taxes, the district of Columbia going they gonna get it's their house <laughs> um and so seeing that chain of chain of events and being familiar with it in the in the american context um and then also similarly to the colonization and the stealing of land in that it was like well we you know we being the not we how do i say this 
killing the Native Americans and taking their land, that was seen as like, well, we got here first, completely disregarding the indigenous people. Um, whereas in Nigeria, it was a matter of, well, whose family got there first, um, and then claiming that land and then how that passed over a generation. So, um, just seeing what, how it can happen in a naturalization, like a natural flow of passing down land, still not without its challenges. There are a lot of challenges that I won't go into. It's a whole different episode, but then seeing, um, how it can happen so violently too. So I'm just thinking about those parallels. Um, yeah, I mean, you said something about really possessing the land, Nemo, and honestly, my takeaway is I'm going to connect that possession, possessing the land and doing something with the land, taking it back to my grandmother. Jasmine knows our family is all about buying property, real estate. You know, she always say, buy property, buy property, buy property. I heard that since I was a little kid, and Jasmine can attest to that. That's something our family is big on. And like you said, buying property is more than just having the land sit there. You need to do something with it. And the government knows, when I say the government, y'all know who I'm talking about, those people. The government knows that you need land to live. And when I say live, I mean, you need a church, you need a school, you need a store, you need a place to play sports, to relax. And if they control those spaces, they know that you're going to be miserable and going to go to them for everything. So there's a spiritual work going on here. And I think it's important that Black Americans realize the dark shadows that have permeated this country and taken a hold of our communities through this work that has been, they've been putting in for hundreds of years to make sure that we don't see ourselves in the light that we're supposed to see ourselves in. And we need to take these spaces back. And, and I don't mean that for those people that anybody, I don't mean by force. I mean, take these spaces back <laughs> and build on them. So we can have our communities and we can have our communities flourish and bring smiles back to Black people. Because a lot of people, whether you're Black, white, everybody's hurting, but Black Americans in particular, they're hurting because they are not seeing themselves on these big stages at the table. They're not seeing themselves as being able. A lot of Black Americans are just seeing themselves as, if I don't get a rap album out, if I don't make it on this football team, if I don't you know, make it, if I don't make it through American Idol, this is, a, this is my last chance. If I don't do this, I have nothing going for me. And you should have a home. You should have somewhere to go back to where you can still contribute to your community. And that shouldn't be your last hope. So that's my takeaway. Ross, we want to thank you so much for joining our podcast today. It's not lost on us that we were recording this in Black History Month. I think it's very symbolic and very relevant um, where can the people find you on social media and how can they connect with you further? I go by Morph Boss on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. So Morph, my last name is Murph, but it's a Swiss German last name. So it's just a play on that history. And the original spelling is M-O-R-F. So it's M-O-R-F and then Boss, B-O-S-S. -S. We really appreciate having you on the show. 
Um, and we hope that if you're looking for more information, you want to tap in further, that people reach out to you on Instagram, on TikTok, and on YouTube. Thank you, Ross. We appreciate you joining so much. Um, and as Jasmine said, we hope that you see from this episode that Black History Month is not limited to just February, um, but it is all year round 366 in this year, 2024. Um, and we drop episodes every other Tuesday. Um, you can find this at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, y'all.